0: and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Engagement Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Beverly Gaventa. Dr. Gaventa is a professor of New Testament uh, recently at Baylor and formerly at Princeton Theological Seminary and has written uh, numerous books and articles. You can check out her stuff by a quick search on Amazon by name. And she's a wonderful teacher and a scholar, especially of both Paul's letters and of Luke and Acts. And so that's why she's a fitting guest for our text this week, which is Luke chapter one. Verses 68 through 79, that's the poetic portion spoken by the character Zechariah as fitting the Advent season for the second Sunday of Advent. So make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. Lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash freshtext. Become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this conversation. It's Dr. Kaventa. Okay, so let's look at, this is Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 68 through 79. If you'd be willing to read, that'd be great.
1: Absolutely. I'm going to read from the NRSV, and I'm going to include verse 67 to give us the setting. Good call. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus, he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, To grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for all your good gifts to us. And we give you thanks for uh, this ancient poem, this ancient prophecy. And we ask that as we study and reflect upon this with Advent on our minds, the coming of your Son, our Savior, we ask that we would be equipped by your Spirit to open up your Word and hand it on faithfully and fruitfully to others. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Yeah, so what's, what's interesting here to you? What's, a, what's an observation you want to start out with in this poetic prophecy? What strikes you today?
1: Well, of course, it's so rich, you know, from beginning to end. But I think it's worth noticing that even before verse 68, where the poem itself starts, We have a bit of drama with Zechariah, right? Because Zechariah has already entered the story in just the first few lines of Luke's gospel, where Gabriel appears to Zechariah and tells him he's going to have a son. And Zechariah, who is old and whose wife is old and who has wanted a child but not had one, Zechariah says, yeah, how can that be? And what happens? He is struck dumb. And according to Luke's account, Zechariah does not speak for the whole of Elizabeth's pregnancy, right? And then the baby is born and they gather for the naming of the baby. And the mother says his name is to be John. And the neighbors all say, oh no, you don't have any relatives by that name. And suddenly Zechariah is able to speak. And he says, his name is John. And then Zechariah is not only able to speak, but he is now filled with the spirit and speaks prophetically. So there's been this miracle on top of the miracle of the conception. There is this, this miracle that allows Zechariah to speak again.
0: Yeah. And that little scene with that, the, you know, the, asks for a writing tablet and writes his name is John and that's like the moment when he then can speak and and it says that he he spoke blessing God and then that's the opening verb of the which is probably not a total accident that it's kind of linked in some ways you could almost insert this back into verse uh, 64 and yet it's but then you you would miss out on the, the spirit filling and the prophecy language that would that that does not appear back up in sixty four. So sixty seven is adding something right. that right. that right. helps That's to frame right. it. Yeah. Right. But uh, but that blessing and the loosening and the t- and you get the image that he's probably been using this tablet to communicate. I guess for I it, it yeah. sort of implies that yeah, this is how he's been operating with everyone for right, right uh, nine and a half months. <laughs> So, or longer, because I guess he's struck dumb prior to the conception.
1: Right. So we don't know for how long. Yeah. right, right.
0: Because he can't perform the, oh, how did I not see this? It's so obvious now. He comes out to perform the blessing and can't do it because he can't speak. I don't don't know if the word, the verb blessing is used, but a little bit of knowledge of Levitical practice, we would know that's what he's out to do. Uh, Now I want to look
1: yeah when he did i'm I'm back twenty two Yes, yeah, when he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision
0: um, and he kept making signs so there it's right. not a trying right. to right. use his hands point right. Down right. who knows right yeah. so, so it doesn't to speak okay. to them there right. probably normally, I believe if I'm remembering my Leviticus right he would come out after that and
1: to give a blessing. Yeah, right? Course, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that's that I bring to reading this is the work that Brittany Wilson did on masculinity and speech. And how one of the things that makes a man a real man in the ancient world is his ability to speak. And the fact that Zechariah is rendered incapable of speech is it it has a little bit of being unmanned you know he is he is separated from power and then of course in the middle of that you have both mary and elizabeth who are speaking
0: yeah okay (laughs) Um,
1: in fact a friend of mine used to say that Zechariah had to be shut up so that that mary was able to speak
0: (laughs) well and that emasculation then kind of has a parallel in the and correct me if I'm wrong here, and there's a vague reference to this even when he comes back and Elizabeth makes a reference to her disgrace or her shame, that when a woman was barren, the the shame would be associated with her, not with him typically back then, right? Am I remembering that correctly?
1: Yes. I mean, I, I think that's a, a function as it has been, I'm afraid, throughout most of...
0: Alas, yeah. yeah.
1: Of assuming that it's the woman's fault if there's no child right so there's
0: something wrong with the soil not the seed is the assumption even the language is it's built in even to
1: absolutely so this is a really important event that he is now able to speak again and her shame as she calls it i'm not endorsing that view but her of
0: course not right
1: (laughs) because now she can have a child
0: and her shame at least vis-a-vis her social status Right. That's what's been removed in
1: the larger culture.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there's a reversal then, in in the sense of her, his emasculation and her kind of yeah. fruitfulness. To use right the kind of the language, right, <laughs> right. That she's kind of she's able to be to to be what it means to be a woman. You know, yeah, yeah. At least in the cultural setting, to ha- be able to have this child, and then he's not able to speak and perform narrowly a priestly function properly but more broadly just loses his manhood wow oh that's so that's so great i i I know pretty we were in we were at school around the same time but i hadn't read her read her work but that's great that's very helpful yeah so then of course okay so then that that helps you with the, the sort of narrative that last bit and, and all the things that you said any insights that that might add into the poem itself, or is this more a little bit more generic kind of uh, all kinds of things?
1: Yeah, I don't think myself that the the prophecy, the poem, is necessarily reflective of Zechariah. I'm sure I get some pushback on that, or or it is some way reflective of him, except for the fact. Beginning down in verse 76, that he is addressing his child, John. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the content is necessarily tied to Zechariah. In fact, you know, an earlier generation of scholars, including my own teacher, Ray Brown, argued that these prophetic speeches in Luke 1 and 2 were at least in part, if not in whole, pre existent. And these are the prayers associated with the honor Anaween, with the poor, which makes a lot of sense of all of these, all of these songs in Luke 1 and 2.
0: Yeah, especially Mary's song, right? The, which has almost no sort of direct kind of messianic vibes. There's maybe a little bit more in Zechariah, although push back on me if I'm, you know, just this song house of servant David you know there's there's some there's a little there's some heavy-handed Messiah stuff that you don't have in the first one doesn't Ray Brown suggest that there may, this may have even been it had an earlier form as a hymn to Christ or about Christ and as it got redacted I can't I'm, I'm, I'd have to go I'm not going to go reread birth of the Messiah while we're recording here but <laughs>
1: um, that
0: like that it very, may not have been a John the Baptist well, thing in its early stages, you know?
1: Well, that's, I think that's entirely likely, but I don't know that, I don't remember.
0: To be yeah, honest. no worries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good, good, good answer. Yeah. But yeah, that language of, you know, the the visiting of the people, servant David, the might serve him without fear. I don't know if that has, that's in 74. Does that have... Trying to remember, does that have kind of almost cultic oh, connotations, yeah, right? Is that about the purification uh, of the temple almost or?
1: I, well, I don't think it's necessarily constrained, confined to the temple. La Truo is a very good verb for serve that also has, it has cultic overtones, but it's not simply cultic.
0: Gotcha. Uh, okay.
1: So it would be to have to use a word i'm not really keen on to have allegiance you know it's not just that we worship this god but that we are we are associated with with this god we are we serve him exclusively
0: yeah and then that to to latruo the lord without fear in parallel to you know delivered from the hands of our enemies i mean that seems to have pretty strong I mean, that would really make a lot of sense to a first century Jew, Absolutely. right? Yeah. I mean, that's gonna right. really click.
1: Right. In fact, I'm looking at the at the Greek where fearlessly seems to me to modify being delivered without fear from the hands of our enemies rather than You're right. worship God without fear. And so huh. I you know, I think there's an element of of tacit acknowledgement there that we do live in fear it's not the good kind of fear all before god which is good Mm -hmm. here it's the fear of presumably rome
0: right yeah and i mean yeah when it's our enemies and then you talk about people and salvation of his people that implies these enemies are alien peoples that are Oppressing us. Yeah. That render our allegiance to God, either suspect or unholy or not sure the best way to articulate it. But,
1: you know, they are a threat. I mean, one of the things we might want to talk about is the way in which this passage, along with many, many others in, in Luke, expands our understanding of what it is to talk about salvation. Right? and maybe not just expands, but really challenges. Because I don't know about you, but the, the Christian world I grew up in understood salvation to be my relationship to God, not just here, but primarily hereafter. And I think already we see here that Luke's understanding of salvation is far larger than that. It doesn't exclude a relationship to God, but it includes redemption, rescue, that is very specific and very concrete. Later in the gospel, and this is true of the other gospels as well, the language, the verb "save," is used with respect to healing. Yeah. So it's not just me and my spirit; it's me and my my whole person, and our our people together, and our people together. In the face of that which threatens us,
0: yeah, no, that's really powerful. Let's let's take a quick break and come back and explore that a little more. Well, welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Beverly Gaventa, and we're looking at Luke chapter one, verses sixty-seven through seventy-nine. The so-called Benedictus, as it was named. I was actually thinking about that when we were looking at in verse 74, where the a phobos, the fearless, fearlessly, as I'm looking at the Greek, like the versification is really janky. And I'm guessing it's because the versification started out perhaps in its Latin form, because this is such a central song and sort of uh, monastic. I mean, it's the morning. It's the morning canticle every single morning prayer for centuries so it probably had some versification and lining that works that works in the vulgate <laughs> that doesn't that then got kind of pushed back into the greek that's a hunch i don't know if it, i'd have to double check that but yeah, I, it clearly the verses don't really the verse numbers are a little are more yeah. off here than usual you know yeah, they're always That's out. true they They are never to be taken as gospel, but they they seem extra bad here. I was like, man, these verse numbers like <laughs> really don't match the the grammar, <laughs> but I guess you're used to just ignoring them, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you at the right before the break, you said something a little bit about salvation in this more more expansive as well as more concrete, I think you said in terms of salvation and and that seems to be linked with, we already talked about the Romans, we've talked about Israel and the kind of the, just the, just the Jewishness, the Anawim, the, the poor in and around Jerusalem, which were a big part of the early Christian community, as far as we can tell. At least there's some signs of that, that some of those were probably connected to that early Christian movement. So, yeah, let's talk about what is this kind of deeply Jewish understanding of salvation that comes out in this text
1: Yeah, well, it it is, uh, the whole text is deeply Jewish. Yeah. I mean, it is composed largely of bits and pieces of Scripture. And anyone who has a reference Bible can look in the margins and just see how dense are the allusions here. It's as if I wanted to tell you a story about the founding of a college and I took every line out of Shakespeare you would know I just totally made that up I'm sure there are many better examples but you would know but let's take another example how about if I wanted to tell you about Alexander Hamilton and I cast
0: (laughs) it all
1: in hip-hop you would,
0: and with yes. a bunch of, and with a ton of lines from the West Wing, which he was yes. a fan of that show.
1: Yes. You yeah. would know <laughs> what I was doing. Right? Yes. You, yes. You would catch it. And so here, I think that's that's what we have. It is this taking of scripture. Years ago, I was uh, part of a church group where we read, that the, the group read the Bible over the course of the year. The idea was good. The goal was good. The plan was not so good. But what happened was when people started reading Luke's gospel, who had been reading the Pentateuch, all of a sudden they said, oh, this stuff all comes out of the Old Testament. You know, the answer is yes. Well, it didn't all come out of the Pentateuch. It also came out of the Psalms and out of Samuel. But they saw what story Luke was telling, right? Especially
0: the opening chapters of Luke, right? Especially.
1: Absolutely. This is so drenched in the language of the Old Testament that if you don't know those texts, it almost won't make sense to you. So what is Luke saying? Well, Luke's saying this is Israel's story. Now, Luke is, very quickly, when you get over to to chapter 3, And the genealogy of Jesus, he takes us not to Abraham, as Matthew does, but all the way back to Adam. And what Luke is going to say is this story, this action of God for Israel is now an action for all people. But that never, for Luke, separates it from having been Israel's story.
0: Right. And that, I mean, I don't want to get too far ahead, but you, you mentioned the genealogy, and even prior to that, you have in the Nuke de the Song of Simeon, right? and it's that nice parallel, though, the final line, right? A light for the revelation, apocalypsis to the Gentiles, the nations, the ethne, and for the glory, the doxa of your Laos, your people, Israel. So there you get both.
1: It's both these things. And those very lines are going to appear in Acts as well. These are not just things that occur here that don't occur later. These are major themes of Luke's gospel and of the book of Acts that are being announced here. And one of them we haven't even touched on yet is this question of promise. You know, God made promises to Abraham and God is it's keeping those promises.
0: Oh, yeah. And then that kind of that that's one of those few I mean, obviously, there's resonances between the Magnificat and this Mary's song and Zechariah's song, but that's one that's almost a sort of the same almost the same language, right?? Because right. the way that Mary's right. song ends, he's right. helped, and interestingly, that's where it kind of ends, and then he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And we are, here we get the oath or the promise. What's what's seven? Yeah, it's oath, which is an interesting word. Yeah. The oath he swore to our father, Abraham, as that deep. As that, that this is the fulfillment, the confirmation, the extension, the the execution of something he swore that he would do. Right.
1: Now, as the story goes along, of course, we find out that the way this set of promises is fulfilled may not be what people thought was going to happen. Right. And I think that's, you know, that, that is sometimes taken up as, well, the Jews just didn't get it, but of course nobody gets it. Right. Right. It's not a matter of Jews didn't understand what the promise was. When you get into the book of Acts, The apostles don't understand what the promise was either. The church doesn't always understand what the promise is.
0: Everybody's always catching up to what the promise actually looks like.
1: Exactly. Well, one way of thinking about the Lucan story is that everybody's playing catch up with the spirit.
0: (laughs) Well, that's a nice phrase, actually, even back to the opening of this, where Zechariah, I mean, you could say that's... That that's a that's as a caption for the whole book of Luke, that's a great caption just for Zechariah's narrative arc too, right? Where he's he doesn't get what's going on, resists, is kind of struck dumb. And now he's kind of having a moment of catch up. Right. I like that. That catching up. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's a catching up with the spirit, that also kind of helps with how something like this, which except for except for maybe verse 76, the you child will be called. If you take that out, it doesn't immediately register in my ears as a prophecy. It kind of sounds present tense, like this thing happened. But when I think of catching up with the spirit, the language of prophecy actually really fits that paradigm, right? I mean, that prophecy is sort of, I don't know, it suggests a kind of movement into the future. But if it's kind of like, well, if we're just catching up and the Holy Spirit's already there, something can be already fulfilled and yet not at the same time, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, some people have, had, have really been bothered by the fact that so much of what Zechariah says, what, what Mary says, particularly with Zechariah, is cast in the past tense, as if it's already happened. Hmm. And there are uh, scholars who have said Zechariah is not a reliable character. I think that's a little that's a little modern, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think Luke would un- understand Zechariah as an unreliable character, but I do think what you get here is this notion it, it's a kind of uh, to use a technical term it's, it's kind of inceptive or ingressive heiress. It begins now.
0: Ah, uh, okay.
1: So that's helpful. God God did this. What God did is in relationship to Jesus, in relationship to John, and these things fulfill those promises, and integral with that is the fulfillment of all those larger promises.
0: And wouldn't you have the same parallel with the quotation of Joel in Acts 2, right, where these things are like, okay, yeah, I mean, there's the... Sons and daughters are prophesying, but I'm not so sure about the moon and the. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, right. and again, right. sometimes people get caught on that and they say, "Oh, well, that's a metaphor." But like going and slicing what's literal and what's metaphor, I don't think is always very helpful. It, yeah. the, this notion of a uh, prophetic events that have already begun and yet are still unfolding, that seems to f- just fit.
1: Well, it's also you know we get caught up with prophecy as future telling. It's also telling what's going on it's announced right this is what god is doing
0: again apocalypsis right a that's revelation right. of Absolutely. what's hidden right. making what's hidden revealed and much of what's hidden is the future but that's not the only thing <laughs> the past is also being the, what what the past really meant what was really going on back then is also can be revealed right. yeah okay that's helpful so just like we need a bigger sense of prophecy and a more jewish and concrete sense of Salvation, these kinda these all go together, right? (laughs) You're just constantly expanding our minds. (laughs) (laughs) Luke (laughs) as is yes, Luke, right. Well, before we take a break and come back and explore some some sermon starters and and some of the practicality of it, are there any last little insights or frameworks or issues that you want to draw our attention to?
1: I think one of the things we haven't spoken about and I'm sure I should is verse 77, the forgiveness of their sins. Yeah, This is something that, of course, is associated with John, and that's what he will do, is to preach forgiveness of sins. It's also, of course, a major Lucan theme in the book of Acts, that part of what Jesus brings is repentance and forgiveness. And I, I do like to point out that, This is not universally what the New Testament talks about, right?
0: Uh, Ah, yeah.
1: Paul has almost nothing to say about repentance and forgiveness. He has a different understanding of what is involved in what we would call a conversion.
0: So, now I don't know if this is parallel or just an extension in terms of the, the structure of the line, but in verse 77, that phrase, to give knowledge or to make known salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. So like salvation clearly is inclusive of forgiveness there. I'm just kind of curious about how you'd kind of splice out that sentence. It's an interesting sentence, the way it's structured.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure those two clauses are in parallel so much as that by the forgiveness of their sins is the way in which this knowledge comes. Or it's an instrument of it, not not a parallel.
0: I like that an instrument that yeah. does. Yeah, this could just be my my eye again because it has some so much of this kind of some so many psalm references. Mm-hmm. My mind is kind of like looking for Hebrew parallelism, you know, where it isn't. <laughs> you know, and that's just the second line. So that thanks for clarifying that. So as an instrument, and then that I guess that helps even with. Your earlier comment about if salvation's the broader concept, and if that's what's kind of coming through this whole event, through Jesus, through the spirits that coming, then the announcement of the forgiveness of sins that begins with John and his baptism is instrumental of that larger proclamation, this making known of salvation. Would that be fair to kind of say, or maybe I'm misunderstanding what you mean by instrument?
1: Yeah, I don't mean sort of an exclusive like exchange notion, which people get into, you do this and God does this part, but that the forgiveness of sins is one of these elements. And then notice that in verse 78, the very next thing is, by means of, it's so hard to translate this, is the, the inner,
0: Splagna, yeah.
1: Yeah, the tender mercies of our God, you know, well, that's a really nice way to put it, but it's it's really God's bowels, you know. It's God's investment is such that it really it, there's this very graphic, physical sense of God's presence and God's visitation.
0: Yeah, a gut a gut level mercy, right? Absolutely,
1: <laughs> yeah, right. It's visceral, to put it more nicely.
0: Yes, visceral, <laughs> uh, which is which is a nice. uh contrast not that this is necessarily intended but a clarification maybe would be better yeah of the potentially cognitive way of taking the word knowledge in verse 77
1: absolutely right yeah yeah
0: yeah. this is an embodied experienced thing on on all sides yeah yeah oh that's great hey well let's take a quick break okay. and then come back and explore some sermon starters And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text here with my guest, Beverly Gaventa. And we're looking at Luke uh, chapter one, verse 67 through 79. Now, this this will be just for fun. I'll read the text again, just to have it in front of us. But this is maybe this is a an inferior translation in some manners. But this is the way the, the Benedictus, as it's called, appears in the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican prayer book that I use for my own personal praying of the office. And so I thought it'd just be fun to use that as a jumping off point here.
1: Beautiful. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So here it goes. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty savior born of the house of his servant, David through his holy prophets. He promised of old that he would save us from our enemies from the hands of all who hate us. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so as we've been kind of turning into these more poetic texts, I've been wondering what this third segment's going to look like this year and wondering, okay, well, how do we preach these texts, but also how do we pray them? How do we live them? I don't want to get too stuck on the whole sermon starter framework. I mean, that's the my default yeah. for this last yeah. segment, but but it yeah. can go any direction you'd like it to go. How would you want to draw on this text in the the teaching and preaching and worship life of the church? What advice would you have or... Insights you'd like to share or suggestions?
1: Well, one of the things that caught my ear as you were reading from the Book of Common Prayer is what I think is the better translation of verse 68. He has, the Lord God, the God of Israel has come to his people. Is that what
0: you mm. said? I don't know. Visited, I'll check.
1: Has visited his people.
0: It's so funny. I could, I, I literally, uh, I chant this. I chant it every day, so I know yeah. it. But if you ask me, like a particular line, I won't know. Yeah. You know, because I know it in context. If it's set at the, I, I shouldn't have put it away. <laughs> oh, I got it. Give me just one second.
1: I think that's probably right. Has visited or has come to?
0: It's come to.
1: Yeah, yeah. and yeah, I, I think that's one of the, that's one of the things I meant to say earlier. I like that because when we get this looked favorably on, there's something. That's a lot rather distant about that. Mm. And I think this language of come to is, it. I don't want to press it so far as to say, uh-huh, sure. there's incarnation here. But I do think there's a sense of, that God is on the scene. God is on the scene here.
0: And, and this word is related. It, it, this is in the same word family as the word for episcopacy oversight, which has to which in its everyday meaning has to do with like someone coming and visiting and checking right. things out. Right. It's not a, it's like an inspector <laughs> more than a sending orders from a distance. It's a,
1: yeah, there's inspectors
0: too harsh, but you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: there's involvement
0: here. Right. Involvement. Uh, yeah,
1: I think one of the things I would want to notice about this is the slight problem for us as American Christians. When we hear this passage and we hear it as if, we have our enemies and God's going to take care of us from our enemies. We need to realize that the people who put this together, that their context, at least in the, as Luke tells it, the context is of an oppressed minority people, right? And we as Americans are not an oppressed minority people, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's not to say there are not oppressed Americans. I don't want to be heard as saying that or even oppressed congregations. But it may be well for us to have our eye trained on the final verse to guide our feet into the way of peace. That is to say, we are not disempowered, at least as American Christians as such, but we may need to recognize, well, for one thing, there may well be people in other countries for whom our country is the one that is abusive, right? That's a hard thing for the preacher. And I don't think you can get into a lengthy explanation, but I think it's worth being very careful how we approach a passage like this.
0: Well, parallels what you were mentioning earlier about remembering that for almost all modern Christians, we're the Gentiles, not Israel. Right. 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 And so then, and you could do that, you could do a little of that work to help get into it. And then the extension of that insight is that that means we're more likely to be identified with those nations, those oppressing nations than we are the poor who are under the boot of Right. Those things, well, at least for us in our context, to right. just be yeah. able to name that and to acknowledge that. But then to say, like you say, verse and it actually all of seventy-nine, you could say, because even the giving light of those in darkness could have two sides, right? right? That could have those who are in those dark places and need light cast, but then also those who in ignorance, will for or not, are either perpetuating or at least complicit in the oppression of others exactly so exactly. so so god we're asking god that we're prophesying and so also praying for an awakening of being illumined yeah. to see mm mm-hmm.
1: yeah i think that's i think that's a really nice way to put it i also think for thinking about ways of preaching this this might be a very good time for expanding our understanding of what the advent of salvation means Ah. that it's more than not other than but more than my personal relationship to god to go back to something i was saying at the beginning that it can be this very political salvation redemption that it also can be quite physical in terms of health that there's no limit set on what salvation means and if we think there is then we have in effect reduced god you know to the dispenser of our own little spiritual security right we've made this all about just me and my feeling good when everything in look at especially these early chapters says, hey, this is a really big story.
0: Yeah, we're getting caught up in something larger that has a deep history, has an expansive future, and concerns all the nations and our relations with one another. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. And, you know, the very next line, the very next scene in this gospel is the birth of Jesus, where you get this wonderful juxtaposition of Caesar— Who is purportedly in charge of the world, you know, (laughs) and where, where is Jesus born? Nowhere. Yeah. So you get
0: all of these. And who visits them? Shepherds. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's. Name, nameless.
1: You get this story that has no, it, it is not a story that can be confined. I think that's the way I would put it.
0: Yeah. And I don't know if it ever occurred to me till you just said that, how the, that 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 inversion, that that ironic contrast of Luke two, which is often commented on, is kind of already foreshadowed here in this poem. So this is a kind of, you know, the that this little nation is actually, you know, the one that God has chosen and is transforming the whole world through them. Right? I mean, you get a you get a little microcosm of the whole ironic inversion that is the good news that the whole. The whole two-volume work of Luke-Acts is going to then narrate. Right.
1: Well, even, it gets even better when you get over to chapter 3, and Luke gives us this, this list of who is in charge of what. You know, the Emperor Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, his brother, blah, blah, blah. But what? The word of God came to John, son of Zebedee, in the wilderness. So the word yeah. is not coming to any of the people who are in power. It's coming to nobody in the middle of nowhere.
0: That's so great. And that's another narrative connection back even to this. Because I, yes. I, as far as I can recall, that's the last reference to Zechariah in the rest of the book of Luke, right? When John's, so it's John's son that's of Zechariah,
1: right. Yeah, I, I, maybe.
0: he kind of, these characters fall out after yeah. that, you know?
1: Well, Luke does that with his characters a lot.
0: They play a role and then they step and off stage. Yeah. And it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Exact same phrasing right. from the poem. I think all of that is great. And I would just say all our listeners just run with that and take that advice very seriously. <laughs> I had one little thought that I just wanted to share with our listeners and hear your thoughts about. It occurred to me once and who knows, maybe I heard this and I'm stealing it. If so, I apologize to whoever's the sources, but. There are four Sundays of Advent, and there are four very, they vary in great length, but there are four little poems in the opening chapters of Luke. And I feel like you could actually do a nice little Advent sermon taking those as the central text, you know, especially if you have any house musicians to have them set those to music and really build them into the worship service. And then you could preach on the the narrative material around it, you know, and or the text itself. But I don't know how that strikes you. Is that stuff like that just kind of too cute? And when you're when you see it in action, because obviously it does a little violence to the narrative structure of the opening two chapters, but but they are spread out pretty evenly, you know, through the infancy narratives.
1: Yeah, I think if you did it and paid close attention to how these how these poetic pieces are related to what surrounds them, then you could, you could do something really interesting with it. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's good advice. Well, speaking of advice then, so when you hear sermons (laughs) on poetry, which doesn't always work, (laughs) do you have any, just, just before we wrap up today, advice for our listeners about, even if it's just things to avoid or, Vistas to explore. I don't know. You know, it's tricky. It's it's not the easiest thing. We hear a lot of sermons on narratives, we hear a lot of sermons on on like an argument like that would be presented in an epistle. We all have our do's and don'ts about what works there, but poetry's hard to it's just really hard to preach on, you know?
1: John, I think what I would avoid is any sort of reduction to a single thread. Yeah, I think I would try. It's easier in some places than in others to see how the poem moves us forward. I'm thinking about this in terms of the Psalms as well. Where does it go? What is its direction? What what response does it want from us? And I, I think this one, you know, wants us to stand up with, with Zechariah and bless God. You know, I, I yeah. think there's a reason why liturgically, it's become so powerful is because it does elicit that praise of God.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. So asking what it's evoking, where it's heading, and it evokes, that's a good verb, you know, because yeah. it's not issuing, it's not issuing commands. It's not teaching doctrine either. It's evoking. Yeah,
1: I know. But I think if you look back at the Magnificat, you know, it starts with my soul magnifies the Lord. But by the time you get to the end of it, this is about the whole of Israel and yes. uh, the ancestors and the descendants forever. Lest we forget, it's also about bringing down the mighty from their thrones. You know? So if you pay attention to the movement of that, what you see is, in a sense, what I was just saying about the birth scene. This birth of this tiny child upends the power structure. That's what the Magnificat is saying.
0: Yeah. And the same flow then here. No, that's so great. That's great. That's great. So the the thing to avoid, if I'm hearing you right, is, you know, just be very wary of reducing to one element or just a bunch of pieces into yeah. points, but to really what's the movement, where is it heading? What's it evoking? That's, that's fabulous advice that applies to all kinds of poetic texts, not just this one. So, Well, thanks so much for giving an hour of your time. Uh to welcome.
1: I enjoy talking with you.
0: Oh, well, it's great having you on and our listeners appreciate your insight and knowledge. And thanks as always to uh, all our listeners and to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this show without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And uh, thanks to all our listeners for getting the word out about the show, but especially our patron saints who support the show. If you want to do that yourself, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see ways you can do that. So With that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.